TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Life has changed in ways we could have never imagined only a few short weeks ago. The coronavirus outbreak has staggered the entire world with fear of an unseen killer and sudden economic uncertainty. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area where we've been sheltering in place for two weeks. And my employer, KCBS Radio, has set up my colleagues and myself with home workstations. Today, we're joined by Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and the host of G-Zero World with Ian Bremmer. Ian, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Happy to be with you. You're based in New York, which is the epicenter at the moment of the outbreak in the U.S. How desperate of a situation is it in New York? Um, I mean, it's obviously um, unpleasant uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, I was here after 9-11, which had a level of panic, but brought the city together. Um, and, uh, you know, really, uh, there was a lot of, um, I think, uh, emotional well-being that came from that. Here, of course, the city is sheltering in place, and that's a very dehumanizing thing to do, especially when you're facing this much uncertainty. But um, it is certainly good to see that Governor Cuomo has been uh, providing a lot of information, strong authority and leadership figure uh, consistently for the last week and a half. Um, And also, you clearly see the efforts by the public and the private sector to ramp up testing, ramp up um, surge capacity in healthcare, um, and and of course, on the economic side, uh, the unprecedented stimulus and monetary policy that's been passed at the federal level. All of that. That's that's a problem. That's Um, moose, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that's moose. Yeah, Uh, I've I've got my dog Brinkley here too, and she's already made it live on the air a few times. So. This is part of working at home now. (laughs) It's no problem at all. (laughs) It's our new reality. So anyway, so on the the fiscal and monetary side, um, you you clearly see that uh, federally. Uh, So, I mean, I do think that, you know, it's it's one thing to be, to recognize that there is a very significant crisis here. It's another thing to understand that, you know, the reality is the mortality rates, if the healthcare system is able to stand up, so not like what happened in northern Italy, um, the mortality rate is actually quite low. Um, and it's particularly low um, for people that don't have pre-existing conditions. So, uh, and, and we know a lot more about the nature of the disease and how you catch it. So, I mean, if you, if you just put, put personal emotion aside and just look at this in a, in a more clear-eyed way, and again, I know that's hard to do, 
um, suddenly New York City doesn't look as desperate. Italy is having a terrible time dealing with the outbreak. And it's obviously early, but what do you see for Italy's future? How is that country going to recover from something so devastating? Um, the, the human costs in that community. I mean, when you look at the newspapers and you see all of these obituaries and you realize that, I mean, ev- everyone in Northern Italy is personally connected to someone who has passed away. Um, and so, I mean, this is uh, an effect that you just haven't seen since World War II. And I think it's debilitating to come back from that. Uh, and, and these people, of course, they died in quarantine, in isolation, um, intubated, um, and, and, and without pastoral care in most cases. I mean, it, it's just debilitating. Um, emotionally. Economically, uh, the financial system is not going to crash. I mean, the banks um, in Italy are the most highly indebted, but the response from the European Central Bank and from um, the EU as a whole has been very strong. Um, There's certainly willingness um, to allow the Italians to spend well beyond um, what the the budget deficit rules would normally be given the sense of crisis. And Germany's also having uh, saved away a lot of money since the financial crisis is now actually doing a lot of spending. So I'm less worried on the economic side in Italy than I am on the human side, frankly. And we've certainly seen the central banks play a large role in, in trying to inject stimulus and liquidity into global markets. Yet a survey of Italians found 88% think the EU is not helping EU membership and that the disadvantage of being in the EU is up 20 points to 67%. Do you see this in any way, perhaps the beginning of the end of the EU, if such a significant country like Italy doesn't feel like being a member of the EU is helping them out at all? I want to say no, but it's obviously possible. I mean, this level of economic shock um, in in a Europe that already was experiencing challenging levels of inequality and in countries that already had strong anti-establishment and Eurosceptic um, orientation. I mean, Italy, the government right now is more moderate, but the most popular party in town um, is the League. Um, and uh, Salvini, uh, the former uh, deputy PM and minister of interior, and if elections were held today, and they won't be, they would win easily. Um, and that's even before you start talking about refugees or refugees with coronavirus. And that's a very real risk that's out there over the coming months. So I think the combination of the severe economic hit, the severe human hit, um, and, um, the, uh, and, and, and the immigration issue, um, you put them together in an environment where people are getting all their information online, very fragmented, very polarized, the potential for Euroscepticism growing a lot and becoming governance in some of these countries, I think is very real. It is going to be a real test of the European Union in the coming year, two years. I want to get to the immigration issue in just a moment, but first, we've seen populism grow around the world the past several years. Do you think that the coronavirus outbreak will fuel that trend? Are there regions more ripe for populist movements than others? Sure. Uh, I mean, Germany and Japan are not ripe at all. In the case of Japan, um, inequality is low. 
um, the, uh, there's virtually no immigration. Um, they've not fought any wars um, and uh, since World War II. Um, and, and people actually quite believe in the legitimacy of their institutions, so you don't see it. They're very resistant. Um, and that'll be true even if Tokyo has to shut down uh, because of a, a recent, uh, again, surge in cases in the last few days. Looks plausible. In Germany, they have had the immigration issue, but there's a lot less inequality. Average German worker feels pretty good about their economic outcome, and they're really happy with the response, uh, the strong response of the German government domestically and internationally over the past few weeks to coronavirus. So I don't think populism is much of a danger there. But when you start looking at other markets where the responses have been more uneven, where inequality is very great, I mean, again, here in the United States, you asked me at the beginning about New York. Well, I feel pretty good about Manhattan. I don't feel as good about where I, where I live. I don't feel as good about Queens, where the numbers of cases are higher and the healthcare response is lower. And it's unclear they're going to get the same kind of private sector support, for example, and you know, uh, philanthropic support than Manhattan will. Um, the United States has a lot of inequality. And Bernie Sanders was doing well. We don't even talk about the election right now, and it's appropriate that we don't. Um, but um, the fact that you're going to have much stronger support for kinds of policies that no one in the political establishment in the United States has real stomach for, I think that's absolutely going to grow in the U.S. I think it'll grow in France, it'll grow in the U.K. Um, I think it'll grow in a lot of developed countries where, they, where inequality has been a big issue, even when the economies were doing well, and now they're not doing well at all. You mentioned in the beginning how New York came together after 9-11. Do you think in this situation that this crisis will only widen the political gap in the U.S.? Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, you do have Trump right now at 46 percent approval ratings, which are the highest he's done since he was inaugurated. But you had Trump, you had, uh, excuse me, but you had Bush at double that, 92 percent after 9-11. And, and Trump's never going to touch numbers like this. I mean, this is the most divisive president you've had in modern history, uh, facing the most significant crisis in generations in an election year. So it's pretty obvious that the country is set up. It's a really unfortunate coincidence of three different things, but it's going to lead to a lot more divisions inside the U.S. The virus is widely believed to have originated in China, and that's led to a number of issues, including President Trump drawing criticism for his naming of the virus and Chinese state media has put out some stories indicating the blame for the virus lies outside of its borders. Ian, how do you view China's handling of the outbreak? And do you think we're getting accurate numbers whatsoever from Beijing? So, number one, um, Trump is no longer referring to it as the Chinese virus uh, after he had a conversation last week with Xi Jinping, though members of his administration, including Pompeo, certainly are. Secondly, uh, the virus did start in China. That is epidemiologically very clear from the entire scientific community. Um, they covered it up for a month. And while they covered it up, 5 million Chinese from Wuhan were traveling business as usual all over the country and all over the world. And that's why we got the spread in China. That's why we got the spread um, around the world. And I do not in any way believe that the Chinese government intended for that to happen. They obviously were hurt very dramatically from it but it is still their responsibility. Um, having said that, once the Chinese came clean and realized they had a big problem on their hands and needed to go public, their response was extraordinary. Extraordinary in the way that um, a, only a technologically empowered surveillance state could be. 
complete information on movement of all citizens and uh, monitoring real time of everyone that tested uh, positive for this virus, which meant they could close it down and they could close their borders. Uh, the same borders that they were upset that the Americans were saying, uh, we don't want Chinese planes to come in. Suddenly the Chinese are doing even more broad closing of their own borders because they're worried that other countries are not handling the virus appropriately severely. Um, you know, that there's no question in my mind that the fact that the Chinese economy is now going to be back fully functioning by the beginning of May while the Americans and Europeans are still in the teeth of this crisis, is going to increase Chinese influence around the world. The fact that they are utterly critical in medical supply and device and pharmaceutical supply chain is important to China's influence around the world. The fact that they're doing donations um, uh, in a way that they really have never done before of medical personnel and equipment, and some of them are faulty, uh, but nonetheless, I mean, beggars can't be choosers. These countries are looking for any help and they're providing it, the Chinese, and they haven't before. The Americans are doing virtually nothing. All of them. The one place where America is falling down on leadership, truly falling down, is not inside the U.S. It's internationally. The U.S. is doing no coordination internationally in response to coronavirus and is providing virtually no humanitarian aid uh, internationally in response to coronavirus. And that is a true abdication compared to what we have expected from the U.S. Uh, over the course of the past generations. It's one thing for an authoritarian government like China to use drones and smart technology to track citizens and enforce social distancing. Ian, do you think a pandemic opens the door for democracies to lean on this technology, perhaps to go all big brother on us? Um, I mean, of course, the U.S. was already heading um, in that direction, and there was a lot of technology backlash, or tech lash, as it's called, against those companies because they were seen to be irresponsible. Um, I, I think that the desire, first of all, because the economy so runs much more clearly on the backbone today of Zoom, where we're doing uh, this call and which is now valued more than the all the American airline companies combined um, or on Amazon where you can't go you don't want to go to your local grocery store but you can buy anything from Amazon and get it within a day or two um, or Facebook um, or Twitter where people are getting all their news and spending all their time I mean you know it's critical and those companies are suddenly going to be seen as saviors they're not going to be seen as companies we want to beat up and we want to break up. So I, I think the reality is that governance in the United States is going to be um, much more um, reliant on these technology companies. And of course, that also means that the intrusiveness and their control of our data is going to become much more substantial um, as well. So much of the U.S. tech supply chain is in China, not to mention pharmaceuticals and all the other consumer and industrial products and components critical to the American economy. And do you think retrenchment is in the cards that U.S. companies will pull manufacturing back to the U.S.? It's already happening on tech. Uh, I mean, Facebook is not doing business in China, neither is Google. Um, and the Chinese companies in high tech were being stopped from investing in the United States. And you've seen the fight over Huawei, and that's only going to intensify. I do think that that will expand to manufacturing and services, especially with the U.S., in part because uh, the just-in-time supply chain 
uh, has been disrupted in an extraordinary way. And people will want more resilience, which means they're going to want their supply chain to be closer to where the customers are. Um, secondly, because American companies will want to be seen as more patriotic in response to a massive spike in unemployment in the U.S. that goes through 10, 15 percent, they're going to get rid of, they're going to shed labor in China and they're going to try to move some to the U.S. And they'll also see that they can do more effective business just with fewer laborers. And that also is going to be problematic for a Chinese workforce that's gotten more expensive and that has a competitive landscape that doesn't benefit American companies without rule of law or an independent judiciary. So I do expect that the globalization of the supply chain is going to take a very dramatic uh, turn. The outbreak has not stopped the fighting in several wars around the world, whether it be Syria, Yemen, or Ukraine. And then you've got refugees living in squalor, whether it's the millions of Syrians that are in Turkey or the Rohingya in Bangladesh camps. Ian, what effect is this outbreak going to have on the movement of refugees and their future? Well, I mean, the refugees are very densely populated. Um, and so far, we haven't heard about outbreaks inside refugee camps. But it mostly, uh, I, I think that's an inevitability. And it's not like we're doing a lot of testing there. We just saw last week in Cox's Bazaar, which is a, a city that's uh, just next to the world's largest refugee camp of Rohingya Muslims in Bangladesh, one million of them there. Um, there's coronavirus now in Cox's Bazaar. There's going to be uh, in this refugee population. And Obviously, the human suffering as a consequence of that will be extraordinary. Uh, countries will want to uh, keep them away from their populations. That, that means uh, more challenges in getting them the care that they need. And in some cases, uh, will probably mean kicking them off their territories into uh, the poorest uh, places, the most dispossessed places. I'd certainly worry about the some near 4 million refugees that are being hosted in Turkey right now, for example, what that might mean uh, for Europe. Ian, is this our opportunity to do something good? The greatest generation tugged and pulled America and the globe through the horrors of World War II. Can we do the same now? It feels a lot harder right now because um, we are not just in an economic recession now. We're in a geopolitical recession where our institutions feel more delegitimized in democracies, where the transatlantic alliance, the most important in the world, is weaker and where the Chinese um, are building alternatives um, and competitive uh, architecture to that of the United States. So you put all that together. I mean, I do think that you'll see great stories and there'll be heroes in unlikely places, individuals, healthcare workers, inventors, you name it, um, all over the world. But the idea that the world will come together implies that nations will work together and that there's a community of nations and as you may know, I, I refer to this world order today as a G0 world, not a G7, not a G20, an absence of, of world leadership. And this is our first G0 crisis. It's unfortunate that it's such a big one. Um, and, and it means that the greatest generation is really unlikely uh, to cohere. Boy, we could certainly use some of that leadership now and can only hope for the quickest possible containment and an eventual return to some sort of normalcy. Ian, thank you very much for joining The Crisis Next Door. We've been joined by Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and the host of G Zero World with Ian Bremmer. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com.
TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.